Wonderful. Wow, it feels good to be back. You were gone. We were gone. We were gone. We were on We were on a hiatus, I guess that's we were one, on one of our first of hi- hiatuses. I mean, I I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah. I had a birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you. Big one. Huge one. The 40. Mhm. That was good. Did you learn any important lessons as day turned into night? You know, drink lots of water. Pace yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I, like, love my birthday, right? It's great. You you bring all your friends together. All your friends are having a good time. Were these all friends that knew each other? In ways, it was groups? an intersection of a lot of different friend groups. And some people came down from the Bay. Some people came up from San Diego. Depths of the ocean. They just walked out of the sea mm-hmm. <laughs> with the seaweed dripping off mm-hmm. of their shoulders into the party. The mermen don't always integrate well with everyone, but, you know... Get a few cocktails in them. Get a few apple teenies. I'll tell you the unlikely alliance between the mermen and the centaurs was something that I didn't see coming. Yeah, yeah sure. But they yeah. get drunk and ride them around, and then you know yep. it may be time to call it. One flip flops, one clip clops, baby. Oh boy! <laughs> <laughs> and now we have something to put on merch. <laughs> We're back. A stream of consciousness news podcast with Stephen Jackson and Brandon R. Reynolds. Yeah, congratulations to us and to you for returning from your travels intact. Mm-hmm. Where were you? Where, Texas. What were you doing? Got a Texas. lot of Texas trips this time a of year. A yeah. lot. We were in McAllen, Texas, down on okay. nearly on the border. And it's a very nice little town. And we endured a storm the likes of which I have never seen before or since in the few days since i've never seen anything it was just constant lightning it was like you know when you're microwaving popcorn Mm -hmm. and the popcorn is cresting you know yeah like it's at the most popping now imagine instead of popcorn that's lightning that's crazy and is it like like. just over like the open field with like the huge clouds and couldn't see it. It was nighttime. It was nighttime. Um, and there were 80 mile an hour winds. So stuff Jeez. was just blowing sideways. And it blew out power to the hotel we were in and Holy to moment. much of town. So like the power went out Friday night and we left Sunday afternoon and the power did not ever come back. You had no, no power. Yeah. So imagine staying at a hotel mm-hmm. where there's just no power. The shower's cold. There's no lights, no TV. Was there like a gen? There was no generator. You no, guys were just like no. sitting there camping in the hotel. Were you paying for your stay? We'll probably have to pay for, for the sake of warmth. We had to burn the ottoman. So would you say that footstool. when the lightning was cresting, it was almost like a crescendo? Yeah, yeah. It was like a yeah. slow, like a mm-hmm. slow build. Mm-hmm. Like maybe something like, you know, in like a mu- musical composition, mm-hmm. how something will sort of- Rising speak, action. Ri- rise and then kind of reach a climax. Absolutely. So yeah, yeah. As it came closer, you could right. see, and, and there were different tempos and rhythms mm-hmm. of the lightning. You know, there were some like big flashes and there were some stuttery little flashes, yeah. you know. I mean, yeah. you know yeah. how lightning works. I don't guess I totally. need to explain lightning. But building, rising action, rising to a climax. And it's funny that this happened. When did this happen? Just last weekend? Mere days ago. Well, Brandon, mere days ago, here in the fine city of Los Angeles, another crescendo occurred. You may have heard of it. I did hear about it. It made 
what we like to call the news everywhere. It was a <laughs> perfectly packaged story. The Los Angeles Philharmonic was yep. playing at Disney Concert Hall. Yep. And during a brief, the briefest lull in Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony, a noise rose out over the crowd uh, that was described by some concert goers as an orgasm, a full body orgasm. Mm-hmm. A screaming orgasm. Something, Stephen, was happening to a woman, sounds like, in the balcony. Yes. And it uh, it provoked a lot of uh, conversation. It is, yep. it is a perfect story for social media, for Twitter. You could say it sparked a dialogue. You could certainly say it sparked a dialogue around what the hell was going on. Whether or not it was an orgasm or somebody perhaps suddenly awakening from a slumber you know what? Let's uh, let the listeners be the judge. That was audio recorded by John underscore Locke 5690 on Twitter. Go check it out yourself. It sounds pretty much yep. like that. But there's also yeah. some fun riffs where people have edited that to, instead of the scream you heard, to be like Wilhelm scream. They're doing a remix. What was that Twitter handle again? John underscore Locke 5690. Man, he really locked that memorable handle down. And, well, he, he has 15 followers, and he's okay. following one person. And the person well. he's following is Burberry. Go figure. <laughs> like Go the figure. scarves? Yeah. Okay, so according to the LA Times, the LA Phil's online program includes this description of the second movement of Tchaikovsky's Symphony Number no. 5. Quote, the luscious main theme was adapted for a popular love song. Tchaikovsky's skillful orchestration, however, lifts the mood from sentimentality to high romanticism. The movement's principal melody is presented in a memorable solo by the horn, followed by other appealing woodwind solos. This is a very fun story that the LA Times (laughs) did. And all of the coverage of it as you read it, you can just imagine, to me, what it seems like is the journalistic equivalent of people just elbowing each other and chuckling. Like, can you believe this juicy story, so to speak, fell yeah. in our laps, so to speak? What a wonderful thing. And there was so much wishful thinking about it being a woman having an orgasm because she was so moved, so affected by the music, that you kind of felt like the LA Times story was doing its due diligence, but sort of doing it less enthusiastically by saying, well, it could have been narcolepsy. They had to add all that stuff. Yeah, totally. I mean, for a story like this, you know where I first went to? I went to people.com. Yeah, I think that's a good spot. You know, that's the source for this type of thing. And it's interesting, of course, they don't bring in any of like the balanced reporting right because they're just like holy crap this woman had an orgasm at a symphony in los angeles let's sell some freaking ads but the la times because it's sort of the hometown right in our backyard there was a bit of rigor so they talked to a number of different people some people said that it looked like a woman waking up suddenly and screaming right as we all do yeah if you wake up in the middle of a concert you're liable to be a little yeah. bit taken aback. Where the oh, hell Tchaikovsky. Am I? Yeah, and then there's another account by a different attendee who said, "Quote: I saw the girl after it had happened, and I assumed that she had an orgasm because she was heavily breathing and her partner was smiling and looking at her." So that's from People magazine. They're they're asking us to fill in the blanks to think that perhaps the couple was having a particularly good time. He was involved in some way. They were making love. 
Oh boy! Should they were have, making love have at that one coming at the Philharmonic, so which I'll tell you what no one's pointing out is the etymology of the Philharmonic, which is the love of harmony. Mm-hmm. And if that right there isn't what this whole shooting match is about, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's emotion of the ocean, Stephen. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And what what about the? Why hasn't anybody tracked down the lady? This is the thing that is going on as we speak. You can just tell mm-hmm. when these stories are out there. Whoever finds this lady first, yeah, I can promise you right now that L.A. Times mm-hmm. and independent journalists are all working feverishly to track down this woman and ask her what the hell really happened. Now, whether they'll find her or not, I, I mean, I, I can pretty much guarantee if she does show up, I really doubt she's going to use her name. But yeah. it is like it's one of those like we got to find the Bigfoot of Philharmonic orgasms. And well, why finally is it a get shameful some footage. thing, right? Why, why, why? I mean, why do we have to assume that this person would be ashamed? Maybe she was just having it. That was her thing. It's possible. You're right, but it's to also be queen the... for a day, Brandon. <laughs> but it's also the case, is it not, that <laughs> while it's not true that stuff lives on the internet forever, if you're not yeah. a heavily internet person, mm-hmm. you know, if it's Chrissy Teigen, it's like, oh, that's a Thursday, no big deal. But yeah. if you're a person who doesn't have a big internet presence, you may not want your name forever associated with this thing. Yeah. So I would say, what's the advantage of putting your name out there unless you're about to drop an album, you know, or something like that? And you're like, well, this is a good opportunity. That makes sense. It's like, what if this? What if we're all buying into like the most genius guerrilla marketing tactic ever? Yeah. Well, one person online suggested maybe this is some tactic of the L.A. Phil itself to get oh. people to talk about it because. Let me tell you, hey. you can't get better publicity <laughs> for those guys than this. I mean, it's great. It didn't even have to be a real orgasm, right? It could have been a Harry Met Sally moment. You know what it reminds me of a little bit what? is what? the composer Ravel, right? He did this piece called Bolero, very famous. You know Bolero? Uh, yeah, I mean, who doesn't know Bolero? But, you know, let's just say, just for the sake of people who are listening who might like not know Bolero or whatever, like, what might it sound like? <laughs> The thrust of that piece, what made it unique was word choice. Word choice, yeah, there's the thrust of the piece. What can you do? The motion of the ocean of that piece, Stephen, is <laughs> that it loops, the rhythm loops, right, in a way yeah. that was unheard of for a composition at that time. So the first time he performs it at the Paris Opera, this is November 20th, 1928, people freak out because, again, it's doing its movement and then it repeats the yeah. movement, adds more instruments, adds more instruments, adds more instruments. And it's this very famous story that people started to lose their minds, I think, because mm-hmm. they couldn't figure out what was happening and apparently there was according to one story a woman was heard screaming Afu! Afu! which in English is the madman the madman and according to this story in classicfm.com quote when Ravel was told of this he reportedly replied that lady she understood nice what a stud you know look I'm not (laughs) uh, disregarding the fact that life was more difficult in previous generations, right? But could you imagine living in a time where just like this repetitive classical music song with a bunch of music musical instruments that a- added on at each rotation? It was such sensory overload 
that it made you like lose your mind you can you imagine like how nice that would be to to be able to respond to stimuli in the world in that way Oh, for sure. The idea that here is something that's happening that is so overwhelming that your brain can't process. So it either yeah. shuts off or mm-hmm. you potentially have an orgasm or hey. whatever it is. Whatever thing well, also, is happening. Totally. And, you know, uh, the other thing that, that, that the folks over at any of these news organizations didn't suggest is perhaps this woman suffers from something called persistent genital arousal disorder. Oh, PGAD? PGAD. Yes. It's where people can experience ongoing genital arousal, but it's not associated with any sexual feeling or activity. Yeah. The pudendal nerve is malfunctioning, and yeah. the result is hey. orgasms on demand. The sort of novelty of that would wear off fairly quickly. And I think that's the razor's edge that you walk with this story in particular and with talking about disorders that are, let's face it, like on their surface, funny, like. Mm-hmm. For example, the joke is, oh, I wish I could have had that. But, yeah. you know, it's also like, no, people have that and they suffer from it. This woman, maybe she had an orgasm or maybe something else was happening. Like she yeah. really had narcolepsy and she had a panic attack or any number of things. Exactly. There's the wish fulfillment of, God, I, w- I hope it's an orgasm. I really do. That's a much mm-hmm. better story. That's a story people want to hear. Yeah. People Magazine just wants you to believe that it was a funny, funky old orgasm that was happening at a classical music concert. The big mystery, other than how Tchaikovsky could have assembled such a wonderful piece of music, Mm -hmm. but also related to that is the essential mystery of sometimes just not knowing what's going on in someone's head, right? Mm -hmm. Not knowing what stimulus went in to produce this particular output, what the output was, what it means. We don't know. And unless that lady comes forward, we're not going to know. We're just going to have this speculation, uh, presumably until someone has an orgasm or some similar thing at the next classical music event. Exactly. The story is held aloft by the mystery of what was happening to her. We don't know. And that's what makes it, for lack of a better word, interesting to consider. Mm -hmm. Exciting if it's an orgasm and, you know, kind of disturbing if something bad is happening to her. Yeah, but I'm not sure that many people wanted to go and learn whether or not it was disturbing. It was just too fun of a story. Sure. There's always been this issue of in human interaction where we don't really know what one another's thoughts are, right? We communicate thoughts through language and symbols and art and all of that kind of stuff, right? But it was kind of a fundamental truth that somebody couldn't read your mind. And it's been the subject of lots of uh, science fiction. It was something that was touched upon in 1984. There's a great quote that, uh, that said, nothing was your own except a few cubic centimeters inside your skull. Well, that's true, yeah. That was the whole thing, that that's what you owned. Everything else, Big Brother could monitor. And then, of course, at the end, uh, Smith gets rats put on his head and presumably they eat through his brain. Spoiler alert. And so mm-hmm. even that was not a secure territory. Of yep. course, the CIA also during the Cold War worked really hard with their various psychics and ESP technicians to try and read people's minds. Uh, not successfully, as far as we know, <laughs> as yep. far as we know, Stephen. And then, of course, there's like the MK Ultra stuff with LSD, seeing if they could get people to reveal inner thoughts that otherwise would not have come out. So it's always sort of been this unattainable thing, though, to actually poke inside your brain and read your thoughts. Sure, yeah. But all of that 
is about to change. And it happened in a little place called Texas, Steve. Hey-o. Had nothing to do with me, but the University of Texas <laughs> in Austin just published a study in which they figured out using fMRIs, a lot of recordings, and yep. some artificial intelligence that they could actually mm, read thoughts. I don't know if they're actually reading thoughts. It's a yep. lot of pattern recognition. It's a lot of extraction and guesswork, but basically they feel they, pretty they, confident that they could tell what a person gist. was thinking. Yeah, the totally. Gist. And, and ha- the gist and is the important The thing. gist is the word that they like to use. Um, it's very scientific. And so prior to this, this technology was emerging through the use of like implants. And via those devices, they could start to get certain kind of crude readouts of thoughts, etc. right? This study is different because it talks about the use of, like you said, Brandon, an fMRI to look at brain activity data, and we can get into what that is later, and feed this data into a neural network language model called ChatGPT-1. Yes, the predecessor of the one that you're thinking of now. And then that would spit out text, okay? The experiment is kind of cool. The way that they would essentially do it would be they would have participants listen to like hours of podcasts and other audio recordings and they would like track their brain activity during that period of time 16 hours yeah so after this brain activity has been measured for hours and hours and hours they would ask an individual to listen to a new story or imagine telling a story and when they would do that the machine would then generate corresponding text just reading the brain activity. Based on associations that it picked up during the time when it was recording all of that response mm-hmm. to the audio, figuring out what is the most likely series of words that this person is thinking of based on the brain activity we're seeing at this time. So I'll read you this bit from the study, which was published beginning of April in Nature Neuroscience. And co-authored by Alexander Huth and Jerry Tang. They write, quote, to test whether our language decoder can be used to decode imagined speech, subjects imagine telling five one-minute stories while being recorded with fMRI and separately told the same stories outside the scanner to provide reference transcripts. For each one-minute scan, we correctly identified the story that the subject was imagining by decoding the scan, normalizing the similarity scores between the decoder prediction and the reference transcripts into probabilities and choosing the most likely transcript. The latter part of that, it gets a little bit technical, but the idea is exactly what we're saying, right? The machine picked up signals in the brain and associated them with a series of words, made predictions, and you have what sounds like 100% accuracy. Now, that's not 100% accuracy of recreating the words, but they were totally accurate at figuring out which story the person was telling. Do you want to hear the difference between some of the actual stimuli and the decoded stimuli? I do, yes. Okay. When I say actual stimulus here, what I mean is this is the thing that the subject thought. Just in his head, didn't say anything, just thought it. I got up from the air mattress and pressed my face against the glass of the bedroom window, expecting to see eyes staring back at me, but instead finding only darkness. Then the decoded stimulus read out. This is what the freaking machine read out from just that thought. I just continued to walk up to the window and open the glass. I stood on my toes and peered out. I didn't see anything and looked up again. I saw nothing. 
first of all, pretty emo freaking stimulus. Yeah. Right? But, like, it's pretty close. Here, I'll read you another one. That night, I went upstairs to what had been our bedroom, and not knowing what else to do, I turned out the lights and lay down on the floor. Jesus, this is depressing. We and then, and then what the computer read out was, we got back to my dorm room. I had no idea where my bed was. I just assumed I would sleep on it, but instead I lay down on the floor. So whatever you say, that's freaking nuts. That 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 you can go from something this person did not say those words and they're and you're able to read out from just thoughts alone. And now, of course, many caveats. This was trained Right. You had to give a subject like 16 hours, hours. And, uh, 16 hours of information and study the way that their unique brain patterns moved and then associate those movements to specific words, etc. And only then can you even get close to what they're thinking about. So, sure, the dystopian future, to be quite honest, is not quite upon us yet, but it's remarkable. You can't, or you can't argue with that. What I also think is remarkable is something that you hinted at, which is every one of the stimulus examples that they offer is like something out of a horror movie. I got it from the air mattress, looked out the window expecting to see eyes looking back at me. Another one, I didn't know whether to scream or cry or run away. Mm-hmm. I cleaned up alone crying. Uh, the one you said, I went upstairs and laid on the floor. One about not having a driver's license and yeah. somebody says, come back to my house, I'll give you a ride. They're like nightmares. Yeah. It's like why what, you're training, you're, you know, in the ongoing conversation of maybe we should not be training AI for our mm-hmm. worst impulses. I don't want to criticize these guys because they're doing really interesting work. But I do yeah. think the information that they were feeding the machine is like the best way to understand a human being is to figure out how to be scared. Well, I'm just going to say something. There's no backing to this, whatever. But what if they chose these particularly like emotionally charged or like fear inducing statements because those would produce more definitive brain activities? Well, that's how social media works. So that's a pretty good thing. If it's high emotion, outrage, fear, whatever. Yeah. that's, uh, That's what drives social media. So why not scientific research? It's also important, I think, as we're getting into this to describe to folks, what, what is the data they're reading? And what is the MRI like picking up on specifically? And how is that being translated into text? Well, fMRI is functional magnetic resonance imaging. For a long time, they used magnetic resonance imaging, which was just a way of making a 3D map of whatever it is that you're looking at. And then the functional side was essentially like you could make a movie of activity over a period of time. So you can map a thing spatially and then also temporally. And the way it works is that it's not picking up thoughts or really even electrical activity. It's picking up changes in blood flow in the brain. And it's a process called the blood oxygen level dependent signal or the bold signal. It's not like it's reading these electric signals in the brain and going, this is what thought looks like. It's more like, well, when you lift your arm, that activates a certain part of the brain. Mm -hmm. Blood goes there. And there's all this activity, and so it responds to that. The critique that has existed with fMRI from the beginning has always been that because of this sort of second or third hand approach, again, it's not reading actual thought, it's reading blood flow, the delay can be, you know, 10 seconds or more. 
So there's been so much research that's come out based on fMRI, and there are people who are skeptical, like, well, we shouldn't put all our eggs into this particular basket because it's not as exact or accurate as you hope. Now, they, in this study, have said they corrected for that in a very complicated process, and they and they seem to think it works. But, you know, science only works if it's replicable. So if other people are able to pull this off, then yeah. you'll know there's something to it. It seems so specific that if it doesn't work, you're going to find out pretty quickly. And if it does work, these guys are going to make a lot of money. Yes, they have already um, applied for a patent, the two uh, co-authors of the research. I also think it's coming around at an interesting time where AI is exploding in all of these different fields. And we're seeing it do really amazing and unbelievable stuff. Like if you ask ChatGPT to write a story in the voice of Kurt Vonnegut, and then it produces this thing that sounds like Kurt Vonnegut, you know that something kind of similar is happening in a virtual way. Like Mm -hmm. all of Kurt Vonnegut's writing is just a series of patterns based on the way he writes and puts words Mm -hmm. together. That can be analyzed and then those patterns can be taken apart and reproduced Yeah, uh, to, you know, to write a sexy love story about <laughs> something that's happening at the LA Phil or whatever. Yeah, or whatever. So, of course, in the study, the ethical concerns are addressed to a certain degree. So they say that this can only really happen under these conditions. If you juice up a patient full of podcasts for 16 hours and then you put that specific person into the MRI machine again, and then and only then can you get the gist of these like prompts that you're giving that person. It's not just like a brain laser read your thoughts. It's not like a radar it, re- gun where somebody. It's not like a radar gun, brain laser read your, read your thoughts type of thing. But what this whole thing also brings up is this notion of mental privacy. It goes back to the thing that George Orwell said about the cubic centimeters in your skull. And that space is bombarded in so many different ways through propaganda, through social media advertising, through data collection of these social media companies, through all these super savvy techniques that folks are using to essentially sell us stuff, right? Like, Like we are being influenced in ways that we don't necessarily know about or have asked for, right? right. So that argument exists. But this feels even more on the nose, hey, we could read your thoughts and potentially take your thoughts and cause you to act in a certain way. And it's an extension of this conversation we've been having since the early days of the internet where we never really thought of our personalities, our writings, our pictures, our voices. We never thought of that as data that could be monetized by some big corporation somewhere in exchange for, you know, free email or whatever. But that has happened and that has caused all of these problems and all of these issues with privacy and with the kind of manipulation that comes with an advertising model that's associated with figuring out what your behaviors are going to be and then putting ads in front of you that guide you to buy these certain things. All of which is to say we never thought of ourselves as conglomerations of data and that that could be used against us. But now you have yet another iteration of that, which is that those thoughts are obviously data too. And if that's something that becomes more prevalent, whether it's taken away from you by force or more likely, as has been the case, we give it away in exchange Mm -hmm. for some kind of free thing, you know, like, oh, well, the Gap will be happy to give you some cool socks in exchange for some thoughts that you have about the nature of socks. You're like, oh, I don't know, free socks. Who hates that? Yeah, it's that same kind of thing. Like, oh, this is another battlefield for 
for data. And the yeah. idea that it right now is hard to extract feels like a growing pain issue. Like, well, no, at some point it'll presumably get easier. You know, we put on VR headsets and that sends signals into our eyes and we respond to that with movements and all of that can be tracked. So in the future, are there, you know, smaller headsets that could scan our thoughts? And then that becomes actionable and, and profitable in some way. Like, yeah, there, aren't, there are certainly people that are looking at that stuff now. We also don't really know what form any of this is going to take at this point, right? We can speculate on it, but yeah. what we should be looking at and what people should be paying attention to is what steps are people taking now to articulate potential problems and to lock down these mental privacy rights? Yeah, and I'm so glad that you brought that up, Brandon, because there was a opinion piece that ran in the Frontiers in Human Neuroscience publication back in October of 2021. Which, by the way, uh, I love all of the Frontiers publications. Every time I hear that, I always just imagine <laughs> that their masthead is like a scientist with a cowboy hat on a horse, yep. like looking out over a tumbleweed of neurons or something. Like love it's, it. It's a very satisfying image. Let's run that through a, a uh, AI. But they didn't see that one coming. Let's see it. Um, and, and so anyways, the title of the opinion piece is, is Mental Privacy a Component of Personal Identity? And it starts to get at just that, Brandon. It starts to raise the profile of this discussion of mental privacy and the rights that should be associated with our own thoughts. And what this piece does is it actually goes into detail about how our thoughts are part of our identity in this very definable way. Yeah. Looking at specifically Chile, Brazil, and Spain, who are talking about establishing what are called neuro rights. And they're looking at a framework that talks about five neuro rights. The right to personal identity, the right to free will, the right to mental privacy, the right to equal access to cognitive enhancement technologies, and the right to protection against algorithmic bias. And this is exactly... The type, as you said, the type of conversation we should be having. And I wonder if what we're doing is learning from our past mistakes of the early internet, where we weren't locking down what our own privacy rights were on the internet. You know, the, the strongest thing out there now is GDPR. And that only occurred after like the biggest nuclear bomb went off ever with regard to the wholesale market of our own personal data, you know, through these social media companies or really through bad actors via the social media companies. Um, and it's in some cases, the social media companies. Yeah, Facebook but like, and Google were selling, you know, they made yeah, that's massive true. That's fortunes. True. But, it, but, and then, but then who they were selling to, I mean, it was a whole right. ecosystem of bad actors, right? Is sure. the point being. And, and, and to be clear, when I am either A, sort of having a mental experiment about like the sci-fi version of something like this, a, it's fun, and if you know, it's like if you can't start thinking about that stuff, then I, then I don't even want to be here. Uh, not this <clears> podcast, <throat> but like on planet Earth. But like that. But you know, if we can't have fun like that, but also, it. I mean, we're going to get back to these digital, these uh, mental privacy rights in a second. But I think it is worth noting that over and over again, the things that seem like they're going to be. That, that that oh well that 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 could never happen oh that could never happen we we're living in an in an age and actually in our generation where every single thing seems to keep coming true right so while it's important to i think delineate between speculation in fact for sure 
what's driving some of the work that we're about to talk about is specifically that. It's speculation. It, it, it's how do we hedge against the infinite possibility for harm that things like the ability to read one's thoughts coupled with the power of AI could deliver. Well, sure. I also think that it's interesting that you find these frontiers in science. hey And really it allows people a second opportunity to have a good childhood in a way, right? Like, oh, this is an opportunity to address some of those issues, like you said, that we missed the first time around. So if you look at those five rights, that's not particularly sci-fi, right? Personal identity, free will, mental privacy. Well, and then equal access to cognitive enhancement technologies and protection against I mean, algorithmic bias. That's a little <laughs> bit futuristic sounding. But in general, I think every time you hit these new frontiers, really we're coming back to some sort of fundamental question about what it means to be a person, right? Exactly. The writer does identify this sort of concept of identity as, I mean, this is a super oversimplified version of this, but like how it's this interplay between your private thoughts and then the perception of others of those thoughts insofar as you allow those thoughts out of your body via language. And then what this writer is trying to argue is that the privacy of our thoughts and the ability for those to be kept private is fundamental to your identity as a person, which is protected. So you start getting into this stuff and it makes us start to question how these new technologies could change the the absolute notion of identity in general. Yeah. Where does a person start and end if your thoughts spend part of their time existing in a virtual space, computers or whatever? Are you sort of there? Is that part of you? Mm. One of the proposals from this group that's working on it says that, quote, neural data should be treated as organic tissue and thus protected by the laws for organ transplantation and donation. So Mm -hmm. they're going, well, this is a big new territory, but the best thing we can do at this point is to say, what's a law that works and then adapt that. So it's taking organic tissue and just extending that saying, well, what's the content of that. And so now you're getting into almost weird metaphysical space, which I think is going to be really interesting to see how that stuff plays out in years to come. Yeah. And maybe that's what was so sort of insidious and jarring and shocking about this revelation to the average person that the social media companies have been gathering all this data about their online activity is because they didn't know they were telling all these people all of these deep, dark secrets about their lives. And it goes beyond, of course, just not knowing that someone was tracking your website in a certain way. It was like tracking the interaction of all the different websites that you searched and then the people near you who uh, who were searching the same things and then the actions that you made after looking at certain things, right? Like that felt like somebody got into your thoughts, for sure. Without you giving them explicit permission to do so, which, of course, is what we're seeing potentially happen with this mind readout technology. And so it's sort of like the excitement that everyone has trying to guess what was happening with this woman at the L.A. Philharmonic. The difference is the future that we're talking about is one in which people don't have to guess and assume and rely on grainy recordings and hearsay and all this. It's one in which not only would you know whether she had an orgasm or not, 
you'd know what she was thinking of at the moment of climax. You'd know what her partner thought of it. You'd know what all the people who were sitting around her thought about what she was thinking. And Mm -hmm. you start to get into a really crazy space where all of this stuff is just uh, up for grabs. And so to speak. So, (laughs) and you know, the nice thing is, Stephen, I didn't know you were going to say that uh, for now. Stephen, this has been Journos. Perhaps you knew that. Uh, Well, you knew I knew that. I knew you knew that. Okay. Well, this has been Journos, (laughs) and I am Brandon R. Reynolds. And I am Stephen Jackson. And Journos is produced by me, Brandon R. Reynolds. Since we don't yet know what you're thinking or what you think about this show, why don't you go ahead and drop us a line over at journos at journos.net. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear what you thought of this episode. We'd love to hear what you think we should talk about next. So drop us a line, journos at journos.net. 